Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Mark Cravens has been a pastor, a Bible college professor, and an evangelist for many years. This sermon was preached at God's Missionary Camp in Penns Creek, Pennsylvania in 1999, and it's titled, We Must Learn to Pray. I know you're going to enjoy this searching message. I wanted to share this morning for a few moments from Luke's Gospel in chapter 11 this morning. And I'm going to do something this morning that I haven't done all camp meeting. I am going to let you out in 30 minutes this morning. Anyway, well, I heard somebody in agreement there. I'm not even going to look to see who that might have been. I know one thing, if my wife were here, I would have got her attention. My kids would have been setting their watches. But don't start, not yet. Now, well, I'll tell you when to start, the 30 minutes. All right? See, aren't you glad you came this morning? Sure, praise the Lord. Luke chapter 11. Would you stand as we honor the reading of Scripture? And I just want to talk to you from my heart for just a little while this morning from this passage of scripture. Begin reading at verse 1. And it came to pass as he, that being Jesus, was praying in a certain place. When he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, when you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins or our trespasses, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. Let us pray. Our Father, this morning as we come to you, and this morning we thank you for thy love and thy kindness, thy goodness to us. We're glad for the day when the king passed by our way, beggarly as we were, filthy, undeserving, unwanted, and unloved, 
And yet, Lord, you reached down and saved us by your marvelous grace. And we're glad we're children of the King by the grace of God. Do add thy anointing to the reading and to the preaching of your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Shake hands with somebody and say, I sure do like you. And then you may be seated. Sister Plank, you make him shake your hand this morning. <laughs> Many times I've often wondered what it would have been like to have walked with Jesus while he was here on earth. I suppose every serious Christian has sometime in his life wished that you could have somehow walked with him. How often I've wished that I could have been there. What would it have been like to have heard him speak? This one whom was said that never a man spake like this man. To have heard the great Sermon on the Mount as only Christ could preach it. To have heard his voice ring out above the crowd beckoning any who were thirsty to come to him and drink. And out of their innermost being would flow rivers of living water. To have come to him, to have heard him tell self-righteous Nicodemus that the key to spiritual life was to be born again. Or to hear the words of hope given to a woman caught in the act of adultery. Neither do I condemn thee. Now go and sin no more. What a wonderful thing it would have been to have heard the voice of our Lord speak. I wonder what it had been like to have witnessed the many miracles which he performed. To have seen the multitudes fed, the storms silenced, the lame leap for joy, the demoniacs delivered. To have witnessed surprise on a deaf man's face when for the first time in his life he heard the song of a bird. To have seen the wonderful look of joy on the face of a blind man who for the first time in his life beheld the beauty of the world around him. What would it have been like to have stood that day by an old grave while mourners wept, Jesus simply said these words, Lazarus, come forth. And after a moment of silence, here came the dead back to life again. I wonder what it would have been like to have been there. And yet, I must confess this morning that if there were only one thing and one thing alone which I could choose to hear or see, or if there was only one thing that I could personally witness, I tend to believe that it would be that which these disciples in this passage witnessed. And that was to have heard our Lord as he prayed. It's interesting to me that the disciples never approached our Lord saying, teach us how to do these miracles. They never came and said, teach us how to captivate the audience like you're able to do. Teach us how to draw multitudes. But having heard our Lord pray, they came to him and finally, after one had been coaxed to be the spokesman, said, Lord, would you teach us? How to pray. I'm firmly convinced that there has never been a man who has ever prayed any better 
than our Lord prayed. In fact, I, I find it interesting that while our Lord's ministry and preaching ceased, His ministry and prayer continues evermore. For even this morning, while we are here, there sits one in heaven at the right hand of the Father, whoever maketh intercession for us. I, I don't think you and I really understand the significance of prayer. I think of what our Lord said to Peter on one occasion. He said, Peter, Satan would like to sift you like wheat. Satan would like to take you and separate and sift you. Satan would like to literally destroy you and shake you. And the question could be asked, Lord, what are you going to do about it? Listen to what Jesus said. But Peter, I have prayed. For you. <laughs> I don't know about you, but if having heard our Lord pray, I'm sure Peter found great comfort in knowing that the greatest prayer of all time was praying for him. And this morning, if you wonder if anybody's praying for you and if everyone has forgotten you, remember this this morning, that our Lord has forever joined himself to the ministry of prayer. And this morning he prays you this really isn't in my sermon at all this morning but I tell you what there are times when the load will be so heavy that you yourself seemingly cannot find the ability to pray but I am firmly convinced in those hours that he prays prays when we can't even pray he prays for us there are in this passage not only the method of prayer that Jesus gave to these men, but he also in this passage, as in the Sermon on the Mount, and the Lord's Prayer that is recorded there, also gave to these men the reasons why we must learn to pray. I'm firmly convinced this morning in my heart that we must learn to pray. You and I must learn to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Prayer is something that every one of us must learn. It's not enough that Grandma prayed. It's not enough that in the days gone by we had great men of prayer. But we have to learn to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. And I'm also aware that prayer is something we must learn. We must be taught to pray. And I'm also aware of the fact that there is no other greater model to teach us than that the Lord teach us to pray. Why must we learn to pray? Can I just share with you from my heart? First of all, we must learn to pray because it is as I pray and it is as you pray that we experience unparalleled communion in the presence of our Father. When you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Lord taught us that the very moment in which the feeblest saint begins to lift their heart by faith in prayer to God, that something supernatural takes place. 
whether you are aware or conscious of it or not, something very wonderful takes place when people begin to pray. For ladies and gentlemen, when we pray, we are not simply kneeling at a crude altar rail. We are not merely bowing our head at our bedside or the couch in the living room. We're not merely looking out the windshield of our cars, seated in the cars we go down the road. But as we begin to pray and look to God, the very spot upon which we kneel or stand becomes holy ground. As we pray, we step in to the great throne room of Almighty God. That the minute I say those first words, Our Father, that the doors of the throne room of the grace of God swing wide open, that the red carpet of heaven is rolled out, and that I have an abundant entrance, and I can come boldly to the throne of grace, that my little crude altar, the little place where I'm kneeling, the little bench, the little altar, the little place where I am sitting, suddenly is transformed in the great throne room of Almighty God. God, and I have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of our God. Friends, do we really understand that this morning? That well, the reason why we must learn to pray, it is because as we pray that we experience an unparalleled communion with the presence of God. And I am convinced that the nearest we will ever be to heaven will be when we are on our knees. In this world, somehow, when we pray, we have one foot in this world and one foot in the world that is to come. I don't understand all of that, friends, but I know it's true that when we pray, we are ushered in the presence of our Father. It is in this place of unparalleled communion with God that we are reminded of our intimate relationship with he whom we pray to. For Jesus said the first thing you need to remember is that God is your Father. I don't know if that holds a lot of significance to you this morning, but in my mind, in my heart, I want to say with John in the book of John, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. I never read that verse, but what I'm reminded that there is a wonderful mystery that even angels cannot fully understand, that God would look down at fallen creatures such as you and I, lost in our sin, rebels against God, and yet God by His grace would redeem us and forgive us and by His grace transform us and not make us merely servants of the Most High, but through the adoption of His Spirit, He would make us sons of a living God. Friend, I don't understand that, but I want to tell you, that's the greatest privilege in all the world, is to be a child of God. He gives us His Spirit, not the spirit of bondage, but He gives us of His Spirit whereby you and I, as many as have received Him, we can call Him Abba Father, for He truly is our Father, and we are the children of God. 
And he reminds us that when we come in the place of prayer, the first thing you need to remember is that you are coming to your heavenly Father for your petition. I'm a father of four beautiful girls. Last night on the phone, I got to talk to half my tribe. My wife and two of the girls were fighting over the phone, and I got to talk to three out of five of my all the women in my life. I tell you, I'm a blessed man. Four beautiful daughters and a wife. I am a blessed man. I really am. And in fact, you better not pay me early or I just may slip out on you and go home. I'm really, I'm about at that point. I, I could go home and almost not feel bad about it right now, Brother Walters. I could just about do that. Little Brittany and Bethany, six years old, on the phone. And I tell you what, if you're not a father, you won't understand this. But the minute they grabbed the phone and said, Hi, Daddy. Something in my heart just turned over and welled up. You see, those girls are they're so precious and special because they're my children. I've been, I've been in meetings. I've been standing in committee meetings talking serious business with people. And have my little girls walk by and just lift their hand and say, Hi, Daddy, and pass right on by. And friends, it means a million worlds to me when I hear those words. But if I, an earthly father, have that kind of feeling towards my own children, I am only beginning to discover that there is a heavenly father in heaven whose own heart responds with even a greater joy the very moment one of his children lifts to heaven and simply say, My father, his heart responds to his children. Whether you feel like it or not, this morning you have God's full attention when you pray. Our father, which art in heaven. I, as I was praying, I felt like I should share this, and I've never shared this, but I felt like I should share this this morning. My father, my earthly father, is a wonderful man. 74 years old, a depression kid, served in World War II. But my father had a very unfortunate home life. When he was two years of age, his real mother abandoned him and left him in the arms of his aunt to take care of him. My grandfather, whom I never knew on my father's side, was an alcoholic. He later on married a woman who was an alcoholic. My father was raised in an alcoholic's home. And all the evil and sin that goes with that, my dad can remember literally have to fighting, fighting strange men who would come to the home in the wee hours of the morning, literally having to fight those men at 11 and 12 years of age. He knew what it was for his stepmother to have her kids, there were 16 steps, halves, holes, his, hers, theirs. To literally have the bigger stepbrothers hold him down and beat him up while she agged him on. Get mad and throw knives at him. He mashed his finger one day down the river, gathering up some scrap steel at, when he was just 9, 10 years old. 
And when he got home, the only thing they did was cuss him out for being so stupid. Gangrene set in. And finally, a neighbor man took him to the hospital and he lost his finger. It could have been saved, but nobody cared. My father never had a mother or a father to say, I love you. Nobody ever kissed him goodnight. No one ever tucked my father in all his life. For some of us, we don't understand that. But maybe for some people, you do. As a result, my dad was 45 years of age when he got saved. He knew nothing about God. But at 45 years of age, my dad was genuinely saved and converted. But my dad also brought a lot of baggage that has been years, years that the God has been working on my father. Maybe this doesn't fit into your theology, but friends, you know, we ought to be very, very understanding with people who come from a heathen background and world that know nothing of the things we take for granted. My dad loved me, but my dad was one of those kind of dads that never knew how to show you that he loved you. I never had my dad tuck me in at night. I never remember my daddy kissing me. I never remember my dad when I was a kid ever putting his arms around me and saying, Mark, I'm proud of you. My daddy was a drill sergeant. He was a military man. And he was in charge and, and I was his recruit. And we boys, we walked the chalk. My dad had a great big old wide leather belt. We were belt-driven kids. Nothing wrong with that. We were belt-driven kids. We wore about three or four of those belts. And there's nothing wrong with spanking children. In fact, probably some of us do good to spank our kids a little more often. But, but on the other hand, my dad did not know how to administer on the other side that tender love and gentleness. My dad told me later, he said, I thought I was making a man out of you by being so hard on you. When I was about 22 years of age, my father and I were going down the road one day, pickup truck. And my dad started crying. And finally he looked over at me and he said, Mark, I need to tell you something that I've come to realize. He said, I have always loved you. He said, from the very time you came and were born and I had you, I always loved you. And he said, I'm proud of you and I'm proud of the way you've turned out. But he could almost, was sobbing so hard he could almost, couldn't talk. But he said, Mark, I have never been able to tell you. And I never could tell you when you were a kid that I loved you. Throughout my years, and even when I was married as a young man, I would see fathers with their sons. I'd see them fishing, camping, my dad occasionally would take us hunting and that was, that was a big thing to us because that was the one thing dad did with us and we thoroughly enjoyed it. I never knew what it was my dad to just wrap his arms around me and squeeze me and say, Mark, I love you. And I've watched fathers squeeze their kids and I'd watch fathers be proud of their children and something in my heart longed for that kind of an affirmation from a father. And a few years ago, one day while I was praying, the Lord gently spoke to me and said, Mark, if you will let me, 
I will be to you the father that you didn't have. And friends, I want to go on record this morning as saying that across the years, God has proven to me to be a father that has shown me love and kindness and tenderness and affirmation. Thank God, friends, He is our Heavenly Father this morning. And when I come to Him, I recognize the intimacy of that relationship. But let us never forget that while He is our Father, which who is in heaven, that we must also hallow His name. For we must never develop a casual, flippant attitude towards our Father. But always remember that there is that perfect balance between intimacy with God and the majesty of God. Between His grace and His glory. And we must never lose that sense of balance. While He is the God who is intimate, He is also the God who is transcendent. And while He is the God who comes close to us, He is also the God whose glory fills all eternity. But thank God when I pray, I enter into a special unparalleled communion with God secondly I must learn to pray because as I pray I discover the power to resign my will to God's agenda our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come your will be done as in heaven so on earth and I think it's important for us to remember that prayer is something more than merely coming to God with our grocery shopping list of things we would like to receive. Though there's nothing wrong with making our needs and petitions known. But as we pray, our Lord said, you must first, before you ever make your first need met, remember to focus upon the fact that ultimately in prayer, it is more importantly that you and I discover and resign to God's will than we get what we want in the place of prayer. It's far more important. And it is in the place of prayer I discover the ability to resign to God's will and God's agenda in my life. I know, I know, friends, that whenever we are saved, we make a surrender to God. You can't get saved without making a surrender to God. There are no rebels in the kingdom of God this morning. This sense about, well, when you get sanctified, you make a surrender. Folks, to the ability you are able to surrender, you make a surrender when you are saved. There are no rebels in the kingdom. And when we are entirely sanctified and we make a full and complete surrender of ourselves to God, that is a wonderful work and it happens in a moment of time. But you and I all know that there are crises that come into our life that, we have, that will drive us to our knees as it drove our Lord to His knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. And though He was committed to do the Father's will, Yet I find it interesting that our Lord, just before He was to go to Calvary, felt it necessary to pray one more time. And what was His prayer about? A prayer of resignation again to the will of the Father. Father, if it be Your will, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Thine be done. Not what I want, not my agenda, but all that I would find the power to do your will. And his will was to go to the cross. There will be times when it will be difficult 
what God will ask of us. There will be times when God will ask of us things that will nearly pull our heart out by the roots. But I have discovered that in the place of prayer, we find the ability to resign to God's will and God's agenda in our life. My brother Chris, six years ago, went to take his first pastorate up near Traverse City, Michigan. There at the Grand Bible Methodist Church, he went. His new bride, Julie, their, their little baby that was two months old, there they were up there in their first pastorate. Little Megan was just a couple months old. They were thrilled and they were excited. They were in revival meeting and little Megan came down sick. They tried to get into a doctor, but no doctor in the area was taking any new patients. No doctor would see her. And they tried and they tried, but no one would take her in. And you know how babies are, especially with your first child. You don't always understand, and they can't tell you what's wrong, and you don't really know how sick they may be. They just knew she wasn't eating right, and she would, didn't seem right, and she was running a fever. And little did they know that a life-threatening virus was at work in that baby's system. And one night during a revival meeting, she slumped over and passed out. The little child went limp in her arms. They rushed little Megan to an emergency room. The doctor took her in. They said it was the most horrible sight they ever saw to see them take their little baby just months old, lay it on a cold table and start working and massaging the heart while somebody else was trying to stick IVs and they poked the child all over and all the veins were collapsed and finally they got a rubber strap and tied it around the top of her little head and tied it tight trying to get the veins in her head to pop out hoping somewhere to find a place to put an IV in. What had happened was a viral infection had went in and had literally affected every organ in her body. And she had shut down. They had to give her CPR in the helicopter as they flew her all the way to Michigan Hospital. My brother said, I'll never forget the long night traveling through the night. And there our baby was, not knowing when we got there if the baby would be dead or alive. When they got there, the baby was alive, but only barely, barely a pulse. And the doctor came out, and the doctor told him, I'm not going to try to build your hopes up. I'm not going to try to tell you something to believe in that's not, going to, that's not true. The great possibility is your baby is not going to make it. In fact, later on, the doctor at the emergency room was to tell them, he said, when I looked at your baby in the emergency room, your baby was as gone as any baby I've ever seen. And he said, I knew your baby would die. I knew it. Chris and Julie, there in that big hospital, no one with them all alone and their little baby in the ICU. My brother Chris said there came a moment when Julie and I slipped down into a hallway where no one was. And we stood there and we embraced one another and we wept and we cried. And he said, I did the only thing I knew to do. He said, I began to pray. And he said, somehow there in that hallway, God helped Julie and I to resign to God's will, whatever it was. And I told God if he wanted our baby, he could have our baby and he said, I can't tell you the grace that came to us in that hospital 
when God in the place of prayer enabled us to resign to whatever God's agenda was for our family. The good news is that Megan lived and she's six years old and she's bright and rambunctious and intelligent and talks loud and giggles loud and is as smart as a whip. The doctor told him, said, your daughter's a miracle. She shouldn't have made it. But whether she made it or not, my brother and his wife were able to find a place of resignation to the will of God as they prayed. And friend, you and I must learn to pray because it is as we pray that we discover the power to resign our will to God's agenda in our life. I've got five more minutes and then I'm closing. We must learn to pray, thirdly, because it is as we pray that we unlock heaven's inexhaustible resources for our daily needs. Give us day by day our daily bread. Thank God this morning that the, that the ovens of heaven have fresh bread for the day. Hallelujah. God knows nothing about day-old bread, by the way. Do you know that? God knows nothing about day-old mercy. God knows nothing about day-old grace. But all that heaven has to give us comes fresh from the oven this morning. Hallelujah. And God has grace and God has strength and God has help for our present crisis. Just when we need it, God has what we need for our daily needs. Oh, I could take another 30 minutes. I'm not going to, but I could take 30 minutes just telling you of wonderful things along the way God has done. But let me tell you about a time when I was in my first pastorate. There we were pastoring full time. And my wife, of course, we were expecting our first children. I said the other night, we never have had a child. We always have children at our household. My first set of twin girls were coming along. I remember I had sat down and we'd worked out the budget and we knew we had enough money for formula for one baby, but we didn't have enough money for formula for two babies. And we didn't know what we were going to do, and we kept hoping the church would give us a raise, and, well, we won't finish that story. But nonetheless, we wondered what in the world we were going to do. Time came, went to the hospital. I'll never forget the excitement. I must have been excited because when I called the hospital to tell them that we needed to come in, the first thing she said was, now, Mr. Cravens, please settle down. I think she thought I'd hyperventilate. I loaded my wife in, loaded the suitcases in. I drove like crazy to the hospital. My wife telling me to slow down all the way. I was in worse shape than she was. I was needing to breathe, hee-haw, hee-haw, and all that other stuff. I, I was needing to start my breathing lessons. I finally got her there, thank the Lord, and unloaded her and got her safely in. And I'll never forget when those babies were born and standing there in hospital scrubs and holding those babies. I, I, I was kind of like somebody said the other day. I think it was Brother Plank talked about babies were ugly. I thought babies were ugly until mine were born. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what, I've had the best batch of kids you ever saw in your life. 
I married a good-looking woman. I, I knew you don't get any racehorses out of mules. I, I married a good-looking gal. And I had these beautiful girls born. And, and I tell you, I look back now, their heads were cone-shaped, and they, they looked like starlings without feathers that fell out of a nest somewhere. I thought they were beautiful. And I remember when finally we loaded up and we went home and the lady gave us some cases of formula, Similac. She said, now, Similac is going to send you some cases of formula. You'll be getting four cases of formula delivered to your house. It's a promotional. Similac does it for everybody, hoping that you'll get on Similac and that's what you use. But just expect that in the near future you're going to get some formula. So we went home and had our formula from the hospital. I thought it was free till I got the hospital bill. And nothing's free. And we were home and we were just about down to the last of that formula. Now we lived in Brent, Alabama, a big town of a thousand people, one flashing yellow light. It was a great big city. Lived on 4th Avenue in a town where, you know, church people would literally drive by. And Melody would know about this. Church people, my church people would actually drive by real slow to look in my window to see if I had company or what we were doing in the parsonage. If I had a car, a strange car in my drive, three or four old ladies on the church would call me, say, I see you had a car in your drive. Do you have company? Busy life. People were busy, you know. There we were. Everybody knew everybody's business and everybody knew what was going on in everybody's home. And I heard the sound of a huge semi-tractor trailer truck coming down our little road. Neighbors come out on the porch. What is a semi doing down here? And I heard those brakes as they as they those brakes were set and that semi stopped right in front of our house. And a fella got out and got a two-wheel dolly or hand trucks and he loaded up four cases of formula out of the back of this huge semi. Everybody's out there wondering what's going on. Yeah, they're moving another preacher out. But nonetheless, four cases of formula. They wheeled them in and Set him down in our kitchen. Fellow said, This is from Similac. Here, just sign here. I said, Is there any cost? No, he said, These are free. I'll never forget when he turned and he walked out. My little wife and I, we stood there and looked at that formula. We didn't have any money. And we thanked God and we cried. We thanked the Lord for that formula. We just about come to the end of that formula. Or we're nearly down to the last can. And my wife said, honey, come look. And I looked outside, and here come a tractor-trailer, 18-wheeler, pulled up again in front of our parsonage. Fella got out, same driver, came the door, went back to the truck, got four cases of Similac, brought him in, and set him down in the middle of our kitchen floor. And I said, what's this for? He said, you're supposed to get this. I said, no, wait a minute, we already got our four cases. He said, I know, he said, but it's on the order. You're to get four more cases of Similac. I said, there's a mistake. He said, I'm sorry. He said, I have to deliver this here. This is yours. And he walked out. And once again, through our tears, we thank God as we looked at four cases of formula for our babies. I went to the hospital. I said, there's a mistake. I said, we got, we got another shipment of formula. They looked at me blankly. They didn't know what was going on. I tried two or three people. Nobody could tell me anything. When we nearly got down to the end of that formula, 
I looked up one day and here come an 18-wheeler and pulled up in front of our house and unloaded four more cases of Similac. Now, friend, whether you believe this story to be true or not, it is absolutely true that until the time came that we didn't need any more formula, when we would get to the end of our formula, that semi-truck would pull up in front of our house and unload four more cases. And when the time came we didn't need any more formula, mysteriously that truck quit showing up at our household. Friend, I want to tell you something. We serve a God in heaven who knows how to day by day supply our daily needs. And I don't know what your needs are and I don't know what you're praying about and I don't know what help you need from God. But I want to encourage you that it is as we pray that we unlock the unlimited resources of God on our behalf. And the granaries of God are full this morning. And God knows what things you have need of even before you ask. Thank God for the place of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank Thee this morning for the privilege of being with these people, the privilege of worshiping Thee this morning in this service. Do bless Thy truth and Thy word to our hearts. Teach us, Lord, to pray. Teach us, Lord, to come to the throne of grace with confidence in the presence of our wonderful Heavenly Father. And we'll give Thee thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. Thank you.